This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Beautiful Birds by Edmund Sellis. Chapter 7 About Hummingbirds and Some More Explanations. Perhaps when I was telling you about the birds of paradise, and how very, very beautiful they are. You thought they were the most beautiful birds in the whole world. They are nearly, but not quite. There are the hummingbirds. They are even more beautiful. At least they are more like jewels, and the Indians who live in the countries where they are found call them living sunbeams. By Western Indians living sunbeams named. You can remember it by that line, which is from a poem by Mrs. Hemans, a clever lady whom your mother will tell you about. For the Indians, you know, live in America, that great country, so large that we call it the New World, which Columbus discovered. They do not live in India, as you might think, at least when we talk of the Indians. It is the ones that live in America, and not India, that we mean. The ones that live in India we call Hindus. It seems funny, but the reason of it is that when Columbus discovered America, he thought it was India, for it was India he had been trying to find, and he thought he had found it. But it was America, not India, and it is only in America that the beautiful hummingbirds live, birds that are so beautiful as they are want a world to themselves to live in. Now the birds that we have been talking about, the birds of paradise, are not such very small birds. The largest of them is nearly as large as a crow, and even the very smallest is not so much smaller than a thrush or a starling. But the largest hummingbird is not so large as a sparrow or a chaffinch, and the smaller ones are the very smallest birds in the whole world, some of them being not so very much larger than a large humble bee, which is quite wonderful to think of. Then they are wonderful flyers, the birds of paradise fly very well, quite well enough, but still there is nothing extraordinary in the way they fly. But the little hummingbirds dart about quite like lightning, and move their wings so fast that, when you look at them, they do not seem to be wings at all, but only two little hazy patches in the air with a bright jewel between them, which is the gleaming breast of the hummingbird. All the time their wings are moving so quickly, they make a humming sound, just as a top does when he is spinning very fast, which is why we call them hummingbirds, just as we call tops that hum very much, humming tops. We have named the hummingbirds from the sound they make when they fly, and the Indians from their bright radiance and the speed at which they dart about. It is from flower to flower that they dart, and whilst you are looking at one sunbeam, that is dancing about one flower, all at once there is a ray of light through the air and another sunbeam is dancing about another flower. That is what it looks like, only really it is the same sunbeam that has flown from one flower to another. Sometimes when you are walking in the garden in England and looking at the geraniums in your flower beds, you will see a little brown moth hovering over one of them and putting a long, slender, thread-like thing that we call a proboscis, though we call an elephant's trunk a proboscis too, 
right down into the centre of the flower. His wings move so fast that you can hardly see them, and in a second or two he will dart away too, so quickly that you only know he is gone, and then all of a sudden you will see him again, hovering over another geranium and probing it with his wonderful long thin proboscis. It is a tube that proboscis and th through it the moth is sucking up the nectar of the flower, which is what it lives on. That moth is the hummingbird, hawk moth, and if you have seen it, you have seen what it looks more like a hummingbird than anything else in England. It hovers over or under or in front of the flower, as the hummingbirds do. It keeps moving its wings in the same rapid way as they move theirs and making the same humming noise with them and it puts a long, slender little brown thing that looks something like a beak of a hummingbird right down into the flower and sucks up the nectar that is in it, which is just what a hummingbird does. So if the hummingbird moth were bright and gleaming as hummingbirds' sunbeams are, it would seem to be a hummingbird and not a moth at all. But you must not think that it really would be one. Oh no, it never could be because it is an insect, and an insect is a very different thing to a bird. The hummingbird moth and the hummingbird look like each other, because they live in the same way and do the same things. They both fly, so they both have wings, and they both sip nectar, so they both have a long thing to stick into flowers and suck it up with. So they look like each other, but they are not a bit the same. A petticoat, you know, looks like a little upper skirt, for they both have to be worn round the waist, which makes them the same kind of shape, and when the skirt is part of a white dress, then they are of the same colour. But think how different they really are. Why, one is a petticoat, and the other is an upper skirt. So you must always remember that, though two animals look the same, they may really be very different. Now, although the hummingbirds or living sunbeams are all of the small birds, yet they are not all the same size, and some are quite big compared to others, just as a peacock butterfly is quite big compared to a tiny blue one, whilst even the tiny little blue one may be big compared to some very small moths. Then again, their beaks are of all kinds of different shapes and lengths. Some are quite straight, whilst others are bent like a sabre, or even a sickle, and one hummingbird has his so very much bent indeed that it looks like half of a black ring or bracelet or something else that is quite round. As for length, some are shorter than a quite short pin, whilst others are longer than a very long darning needle. Racket-tailed hummingbird. Of course, there is a reason for the beaks of hummingbirds being so different, and the reason is that they have to go into different flowers and must fit into them as a finger fits into a finger stall or a periwinkle into its shell. If the part of the flower that holds the nectar is straight, then the beak of the hummingbird that feeds on the nectar of that flower must be straight too. But if it is curved, then of course the beak must be curved, or else how could it be pushed into it? And if the nectary of any flower for that is what the place that the nectar is in is called, was shaped like a corkscrew, then the beak of the hummingbird that sucked out the nectar from that flower would have to be shaped like a corkscrew too. 
but there are no flowers shaped like that, and so there are no hummingbirds with the corkscrew beaks, like the tail of a periwinkle. But there is a flower that has its nectary or honey tube bent round into almost a half circle, and it is just that one hummingbird that has its beak bent in the same way that sips the nectar from that flower. No other one is able to do it, and there is no other flower that the hummingbird can sip the nectar from. And then there are more than 400 different kinds of hummingbirds, and the beak of every one of them must fit into some flower or another, and often into a great many more than one. Oh then, what a lot of different kinds of flowers there must be, for all these beaks to fit into. Ah, there are indeed, for it is the greatest forests or plains of America, the largest in the whole world, or on the slopes of the great mountain ranges there, the highest in the world except the Himalayas, that the hummingbirds live, and everywhere there are wonderful trees and wonderful flowers. As for the trees, I have told you that some of them are like in the forests of the Malay Archipelago and the great forests of Brazil. I think they are still larger and more wonderful. And as for the flowers that grow in the wonderful forests or on the great plains or the slopes and sides of those great high mountains, how could I ever give you an idea of what they are like or how should I know where to begin when there are so many? For there are some that are like great scarlet trumpets on the outside of their petals, but when you look inside them, they are like the open mouths of the fierce dragons shooting out a lot of fiery orange tongues, all forked and cloven ever so many times over, each tongue looking as if it were the tongues of twenty little hissing snakes, all tied together in a bundle and ready to dart at you. And then there are some that are in bunches, and each bunch looks as if a lot of oxen had put their heads against each other and begun to grow smaller and smaller and smaller till their horns were no longer than honeysuckles, and then they disappeared altogether except their horns which had turned pink and stayed there. Bunches of little pink ox horns are what those flowers look like. Then there are flowers that look as if they had almost changed into very beautiful butterflies, and others that seem to be very beautiful butterflies just changing into flowers. There are flowers that are all the colours that there are, and others that have tried all the colours that there are, and then found out new ones to be of. And there are some too that are only white, but so lovely that all the flowers of the colours that there are gaze at them and envy them. Some are so soft and delicate, although you see them, you only seem to be dreaming of them. They make you think of heaven, and it is as if angels were kissing you. Others are like golden stars, with a stem that is like a long, long, very long piece of red string that goes tying itself round and round a great many trees, and climbing up and up them, and all the way up there are bright green leaves and the beautiful golden stars. Other strings are golden or green, and have a pink or crimson stars upon them, and some of these hang down like glowing lamps from a soft, cool emerald ceiling. Some flowers are like little bunches of red counters that you play games with, and there is one that is like a wonderful scarlet, shining leaf, with a thick little tail at the tip of it, twisted round in a coil. This tail is orange with cream-white spots upon it, but just as at its own tip, it's scarlet again, 
like the rest of the leaf. Such a wonderful-looking flower. There are creeping crimson nasturtiums that make the air blush in spots, azaleas with scarlet that has swooned into pink, and pink that has blushed into scarlet, and calceolarias that look like yellow flower bubbles that fairies had blown into the air, and that have come down softly upon delicate little stalks and stayed there without bursting. Not all of these wonderful flowers have a scent, for scented flowers are commoner here in England than are far-off tropical countries, but a few of them have, and their scent is so exquisite that you would think it was sent from heaven. Some of the flowers have leaves that are even more beautiful than themselves, and sometimes it is these leaves that you look at, and not the flowers at all. Some of these leaves seem to be made of velvet, or something even softer, and more velvety than velvet, whilst the colours in them are like the patterns of a very beautiful turkey carpet. Others look like wonderful spearheads, or the tops of very ornamental park railings, green and red and orange, and all striped and spotted and speckled like the skin of newts or lizards. There are some leaves so large, too, that they would almost make a carpet for a very small room, and so handsome that you might go into all the haberdashers' shops in the world without finding any carpet that would look nearly so well. Some are still larger, and those are the leaves of palm trees that bend down from high in the air, and at the end of the long bending stalks that spring from the top of the small slender stem. They are of such a soft, lovely green that it makes you cool even to look up at them, and so graceful and delicate that you think of the fairies, but so big and strong that a giant might lie upon them and go to sleep without breaking them or crushing them down. And then there are wonderful cactuses, so large that they are called trees, with trunks like great prickly green caterpillars and branches like smaller prickly green caterpillars stuck to them by the tail. But on these ugly branches there are flowers like beautiful purple stars, whilst in the pools or the rivers water lilies are floating that look like large purple flakes of snow. It is amongst flowers and leaves and trees like these that the hummingbirds fly about. Those are the wonderful goblets out of which they sip their nectar. But now about this sipping of nectar I have something to tell you, and when I have told it to you, you will know more than a good many people do who think they know something about hummingbirds and natural history. Well, it is this. The hummingbirds do not live only on the nectar in the flowers, as most people think they do, but on the insects that have been drowned in it and which they suck up at the same time. You see, the insects, of course, I mean little insects, flies or gnats, not large moths and butterflies, get into the tubes of the flowers to sip the nectar themselves, and they often fall into it and are not able to get themselves out again, but drown there, for to them it is like a little lake or pond, a pond of nectar, and of course very nice, but still, for all that, it drowns them. There is hardly any flower cup that has not these drowned insects in it, and when the hummingbirds drink the nectar, they swallow the little insects at the same time. They could not live upon nectar only. They want animal food, as it is called, as well, and that is the way in which they get it. That is why when people have caught hummingbirds and given them only nectar or sugar and water, which is something like it to live on, they have always died. 
There are no insects in it, no animal food. They had gravy, you see, but no meat, and they wanted meat as well as gravy. So they died, the poor hummingbirds. But I think it is almost better for a living sunbeam to die than to be kept living in a cage. But now why do the Indians call the hummingbirds living sunbeams? Oh, but you will say I have told you that, and besides anybody could have guessed. It is because they are so bright and gleaming, and hover in the air as a sunbeam dances in it, or shoot through it as quickly and as brightly as a sunbeam shoots down from the sun. Well, yes, that is one explanation, but why should there not be two, as there were about the birds of paradise, so that you can choose the one you like best, for you know you are not a clever person yet. Well, there are two, for the Indians say that they are hummingbirds are called living sunbeams, because they really are living sunbeams, just as you are called a little girl, because you are a little girl, and how could there be a simpler explanation of a thing than that? And this is how it happened, only you must remember that it was a very, very long time ago. In those old days the sun had not long sent his beams to earth, and it was only after they came there that the things upon the earth began to live. There had been no life at all before. It had all been dark and cold. It was only when the sun's beams began to shine upon the cold, dark earth that they warmed it into life and love. Now as first one beautiful thing, and then another began to live upon the earth, the sunbeams admired them all very much, but they did not envy them, for there was nothing there quite so beautiful as a sunbeam. But one day, as they were dancing upon the waters of the sea, they heard the fishes saying to each other, How beautiful are the sunbeams! Is there anything so beautiful as they? Our scales flash out brightly, but compared to them they are dull, even on the sunniest day. We should envy them, were they alive like us, but of course, as it is, it is different. Are we not alive? said the sunbeams, and they felt sad and did not dance on the waves any more than that day. Then another day they were dancing on the leaves, and falling through them onto the shady ground underneath, checkering it with gold. How glorious are the sunbeams, said the leaves to each other, more glorious even than the birds or the butterflies that perch amongst us. Would that we were as beautiful? Do you envy them, said a butterfly, who had overheard and felt annoyed. They have neither sense nor breath, are neither born nor die. Envy us, if you will, who will have all these advantages, and are so beautiful as well, much more so than yourselves, but do not, however plain you may be, envy what is not alive. Are we not alive? said the sunbeams, and they were discontented, and the clouds hid them, so that neither the trees nor the birds and butterflies within them seemed to be alive any more. And again, the sunbeams were shining through a small window, where in a wretched garret, on a still more wretched bed, lay a man who had care and sorrow, yes and worse even than those in his heart would that i were dead he cried as he clasped his hands on his forehead ah how i envy the sunbeams but no i will not envy them for they are not alive they are inanimate merely are we not alive said the sunbeams and does nobody envy us on that account and the wretched room that had seemed quite cheerful whilst they were there became dark and dismal again as they withdrew. 
and now it was the sunbeams who envied everything, bird or beast or plant or leaf or flower, even the man in the garret, because they were alive. It is hard that we alone should be without life, thought they, and they complained to the sun. Give us life, they cried. We are more beautiful than anything here on earth, but nothing envies us because we are not alive. It is dreadful not to be envied. And do you really think, said the sun, that you, who have given life to others, have no life yourselves? Before I sent you to earth, it was dark and cold and lifeless. It needed you to give it that for which you are now asked. Do not, then, be discontented any more, but be assured that you have life as much as anything that lives and grows upon the earth, though, to be sure, it is of another kind. Be satisfied, therefore, and rejoice in your loveliness. This answer of the sun satisfied most of the sunbeams, but there were some who were foolish and whom it did not satisfy. Give us such life as the children of the earth enjoy, cried these, the life that breathes and grows, that has a shape, that is born and dies. That is the life that we would have. Be good to us and give us that. Then the sun said to the foolish sunbeams, I can give you such life as you ask for, and if you will persist in asking it, I must, for you are my children, and I cannot bear to see you unhappy. But remember if I once grant you this wish, and give you the life that earth's children enjoy, you can never more be as you now are, or enter into my palace, my golden palace again. Now you fly from me to the earth, and from the earth back to me. But once you have earth's life, on earth you must remain, and on earth you must die. You are immortal now. When you become children of the earth, you will be mortal as they are. Plover Crest Hummingbird But the foolish sunbeams, who could not understand what death should be, persisted, and the son who loved them because they were his children had to do what they asked. So one night, when all the other sunbeams had flown back to him, he sent these foolish ones to sleep on the earth, which had never happened to them before. And there they lay all night, some in the flower cups, some under the leaves of the trees, without giving them any light at all. For when a sunbeam is asleep, it can give no light. But in the morning, when their brother and sister sunbeams flew back to earth, they woke up, but the two did not know each other again, for the foolish sunbeams were not sunbeams any more, not real ones, that is to say. They flew about, still in the forests, and glanced through the trees, and hovered over the flowers, in almost the same way as they had done before. But now they had a shape and wings, and they sipped the nectar out of the flower cups, which was a thing they had never even dreamed about. They were hummingbirds, and though their feathers were as bright as they had ever been, and though they had all of them long Latin names and a scientific description in books, still it was not quite the same, for it would take a lot of Latin and a lot of scientific description to make up for not being a sunbeam. But when the Indians came to know of the occurrence, they called them living sunbeams, and it is easy to understand what they meant. And now you know, until you are a clever person, how hummingbirds came into the world. But you must not think that the other sunbeams, the real ones that have never changed into anything, are dead. Oh no, indeed! How could they dance and play about as they do, if they were? 
End of chapter 7「Chapter 8 of Beautiful Birds」This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter Beautiful Birds by Edmund Sellis Chapter 8 Some Very Bright Hummingbirds one of the most beautiful of all the hummingbirds, but we can say that of so many, is the rainbow hummingbird. It is very large for a hummingbird, so what will you think when I say that its body is about the size of a little wren's, a bird which perhaps you had been thinking was the smallest bird there is? Why, a hummingbird that is as big, or almost as big, as a wren, is a very big hummingbird indeed, in fact quite a gigantic one. But now, the tail of this hummingbird is very different to a wren's and makes it look still bigger because it is so long, three to three and a half inches, I should think, and such a wonderful shape. It is forked, so you must think of a swallow first if you want to imagine it. But then, you must imagine that the two feathers which make the fork of a swallow's tail are curved outwards like two little scimitars so that their tips are six inches apart from each other. Indeed, they gleam as brightly as any scimitar does in the sun, but it is not like steel that they gleam, for they are of the most lovely, deep, rich, violet blue that you can imagine such a colour as was never seen anywhere else out of the rainbow, and now I come to think of it, what these lovely feathers are most like is two little violet rainbows set back to back. You can think how lovely they look as they go darting through the air, and I must tell you that the beautiful violet blue sends out gleams of other kinds of blues, lighter ones, which are just as beautiful as the violet itself. On the opposite page, you see the picture of a hummingbird that is a good deal like this one, but it is not the same, so the tail is not quite the same either. Now, of course, you will think, and you will be quite right to think so, that a bird that has a tail like two little violet rainbows will have the other parts of him beautiful as well. Well, the back of this bird is all green, a beautiful, shining, gleaming green, and his head is green too. At least, it seems to be when you see it first. But, as you look at it, all at once the green changes into a heavenly violet blue to match the heavenly violet blue of its lovely rainbow tail. Under the throat it is green like the rest, but just in the centre of it there is a tiny little drop just one or two little feathers, of the very loveliest amethyst. Ah, fancy seeing a bird like that flying about and hovering over the flowers. Only you would not see him, for you would not be able to see his wings, at least not properly, they would move so fast. What you would see would be a little circle of hazy brown mist, and, right in the middle of it, a little sparkling sun, and on the other side, 
gleaming through the mist, two sweet little violet rainbows. Then, all at once, there would be a trail of light in the air, and it would all be somewhere else, another sun and rainbows over another flower. Of course, really, a hummingbird would have flown from one flower to another, but what it would look like would be a gleam of light, a sunbeam, with a jewel flash at each end of it. Another hummingbird, the Sappho Comet, is about the same size as the last one, and he is a lovely gleaming green too, an emerald green, I think, on his head and neck and shoulders, but his throat is light blue, the colour of a most beautiful turquoise. But such a turquoise! There is no other one in the world that ever gleamed and flashed and sparkled in that way, because, you know, turquoises do not sparkle at all, at least nowhere else. It is not their habit. But I think that some of the very finest of them, at least the lovely colours that were in them, must have flown into that hummingbird's throat and begun to gleam and flash and sparkle there. Perhaps they begged to be allowed to as a very special favour. Then the tail of this hummingbird is forked too, like the other ones, but not in quite the same way. It is more like the fork of an arrow than two little rainbows turned back to back. And instead of being violet, it is all ruby and copper and topaz, with a broad band of velvet black at each tip. I cannot tell you how brilliant those colours are, the ruby and the copper and the topaz. They are so brilliant that, if you were to take them into a dark room, I really almost think they would light it up like a lamp or a candle. Oh, it is a wonderful tale. You might think and think for quite a long time, and yet you would never be able to think how bright, how wonderfully bright it is. But listen to what the Indians say. They say that once that hummingbird was out in a thunderstorm, and the lightning got angry with him because he flew so fast and tried to strike him. It was jealous of him, that was the reason for the lightning likes to think itself faster than anything else. But although the lightning chased that hummingbird for a very long time, it could only just touch his tail, and there it has stayed, a little flash of it, which was not enough to hurt, ever since. You know how bright the lightning is. That will help you to think what that hummingbird's tail is like. And you know now what his throat is like. Fancy seeing them both together, flashing, sparkling, gleaming, beaming, dancing, dancing in the glorious glowing sunshine of South America. But now, in the splendid breasted hummingbird, all the glory is upon his breast, his throat. Once, I think, at least the Indians say so, he must have flown up very high, yes, right up to heaven, and the door was open, and he tried to fly in. But he could not. They turned him away. But the glory of heaven had just fallen upon his breast, and he flew back with it there, to earth. It is green, that glory, 
the most marvellous light gleaming green, but all at once, as you look at it, it has changed to blue, an exquisite light turquoise blue, and then, just as you are going to cry out, Oh, but it's blue, not green! It is green again, and then blue again, before you can say that it is green, and then, all at once, it is both at the same time, for each has changed into the other. It is the throat gorget, you know I explained to you, on which this glorious colour falls, but this bird has such a large one that it covers the breast as well as the throat and goes up quite high on each side till it meets the deep, rich, velvety black of the head. Of course, this deep, velvet black makes the wonderful green and blue look all the more wonderful, for it is a dark background for them to shine out against, and your mother will explain to you what a background is. Then, on the back this hummingbird is green too. In fact, you might call him the emerald hummingbird, but it is darker than that other green, if anything so bright can be darker and without the lovely turquoise blue in it. It is a glory, but not such a glory as the one on his breast, not the glory of heaven that fell upon him at its gates. Perhaps it is his memory of it as he flew away. But now I feel sure you will ask why the same brightness which streamed out of heaven and spoilt the plumage of the birds of paradise should have made the plumage of this hummingbird so beautiful? Well, it is a difficult question, but perhaps it is because the hummingbird was thinking of heaven and wishing to get into it, whilst the birds of paradise had got tired of being in heaven and were only thinking of earth. That might have made a very great difference. And perhaps, you will say, if the hummingbirds are sunbeams that have been changed into birds, why should some of them have been made more beautiful afterwards in other ways? Well, as to that, there are a great many different kinds of hummingbirds, more than 400, as I told you, so perhaps they were not quite all of them sunbeams first. And besides, even when a bird has been a sunbeam first, something else might happen to it when it had become a bird. At any rate, if one explanation does not seem satisfactory, there is always the other, and one of them must be the right one, until you are a clever person, which will not be yet a while. So now we will go on, for there are some other hummingbirds with other explanations waiting. The glow-glow hummingbird, I do like that name, is smaller than any of the other three we have talked about, for it is less than half the size of a little wren. Its head and its back are shining green. You will be thinking all the hummingbirds are green, but wait a little. Its breast is white, but its throat, oh, its throat, what is it? What can it be called? It is a rose that has burst into flame. No. It is a flame trying to look like a rose. No, it is neither of these. It is one of those stars that are of all colours 
and change from one to the other as you look at them, from green to gold, from gold to topaz, from topaz to rosy red. Only this star changed into every colour at once, which was wonderful, and as he did that, and this was still more wonderful, he flew all to pieces, and little bits of him were scattered through the whole air, and when the sun rose and shone upon them, they were all hummingbirds, flying about with wings and feathers, and with long Latin names, so that there should be no doubt about it. It was wonderful, wonderful, but yet it was not quite so wonderful as the colours upon this hummingbird's throat. The little flame-bearer, there is a name for you, is a still smaller hummingbird than the last one. Indeed, his body without the feathers would not be very much larger than a very large humble-bee. Here, again, all the wonder is on its throat, which is topaz and green and copper, all glowing and sparkling together, as if they were all married to one another, and each of them was trying to get the upper hand. Ah, was there ever such a sweet little gem-bird? He is a jewel mounted on wings and set in the air. Only sometimes, when he hovers just underneath a flower, he seems hanging from its tip like a pendant. Costa's coquette. That means that someone named Costa, some Portuguese gentleman, was the first to write about it, is larger than the little flame-bearer, though not half so big as a wren, and he tries to be brighter. Whether he is brighter, I am sure I cannot say. To tell properly, one ought to see them both hovering under the same flower, or at least very close together, and even then one would only feel bewildered. But this one's head and throat are all one splendour, one marvellous gleam of rosy, pinky, rosy pink, pinky rose, magenta. Only if you say that that is what it is, it will change into violet and contradict you, and then, if you say it is violet, it will change into topaz and contradict you again. So you had better say nothing, for one does not want to be contradicted, but just hold your breath and watch it. It will change quite soon enough, even then, long before you are tired of its rosy, pinky, rosy, pink, pinky, rose, magenta, which is a colour you have not seen, and which I have not told you about before. Only if you must say something about it whilst you are looking at it, something besides, oh, I mean, say it is a hummingbird, that will be quite sufficient, and not one of its colours can be offended with you then for not mentioning them and mentioning the others. Now I must tell you that the feathers of this little bird's throat, of that wonderful, gleaming throat gorget, grow out on each side into two little peaks, two little pointed tongues of rose-pink magenta flame. But hush! And he can spread them out and shoot them forward, as well as the whole of the gorget, in quite a wonderful way. When he does that, what he seems to do 
is to strike a great number of matches at the same time, and from each one, as he strikes it, there bursts out hundreds and hundreds of bright, sparkling jewels of flame. Ah, you should see him strike his jewel matches, all together, all the jewels that there are, all struck in one second as he whizzes about in the air. His back is all green and so bright, if only you cover up his head and throat. If you don't cover them, or as soon as you uncover them again, you hardly seem to see it. It is no brighter then than a glowworm is when a very bright star is shooting through the air. Now we come to the splendid coquette, a little bird not half the size of a golden-crested wren, which is the smallest bird that we in this country know anything about, smaller even than the common wren. He has a crest too, this little hummingbird, a very fine one of chestnut feathers, not sticking up on the top of the head, as so many crests do, but going backwards after the head has come to an end so that it makes a little chestnut feather awning for the neck to be under. But just where they spring from the head, each of these chestnut feathers is black, and at their tips too they have all a little black spot, and this makes them look still prettier than if they were all chestnut. When the little bird spreads out this fine crest of his, like a fan, for he can do that, all the feathers in it stand out separately from each other, and then he looks like a little sun in the centre of his own rays. Yes, the sun, because he is so very bright. He has a gorget, or perhaps you would prefer to call it a lappet, of feathers on his throat and breast, of the most glorious radiant green colour, and from it there shoot out, one on either side, a pair of the very loveliest and most delicate little fairy wings that ever you never saw, for I feel sure that you never have seen anything at all like them. I do not mean, of course, that they are real wings to fly with. No, it would be funny if a bird had two pairs of that kind. But ornamental ones, wings for the little hen hummingbird, who has none, to look at and say, How beautiful! extraordinarily becoming. Each of these dear little wings is made by a few delicate, long, slender feathers of a light chestnut colour, the same as the feathers of the crest, only, instead of being tipped with black, these ones are tipped with a spot of the same lovely green that there is on the throat and breast. The longest of them, which is in the middle, is nearly an inch long, which is very long indeed, when you think how small the little birdie is, and it stands out a quarter of an inch beyond the two next longest ones on each side of it, and these are almost a quarter of an inch longer than the ones that come next. If you hold out your hand with the finger spread out, and imagine the middle one a good deal longer, and the little finger and thumb much shorter, then you will know the shape of these dear little fairy wings. Only, of course, feathers are much more elegant than fingers, even than pretty little fingers. Think how pretty something in muslin or puff lace, like that, on a dress would be. But it is ever, oh, ever so much prettier on a little hummingbird, 
in little chestnut feathers with little green spangles at their tips. And that is why I call them fairy wings, for I think if any pair of wings that are not a fairy's could be pretty enough for a fairy, these would be the ones. And I think if you saw this sweet little hummingbird hanging in the air, with his breast all flashing and sparkling, and with his chestnut crest spread out above it, and his little chestnut and star-spangled wings flying out on each side of it, you would think him almost as pretty as a fairy could be. You would think his fairy wings the real ones that he was flying with, because you would see them, whilst the other ones would be moving so quickly that they would be only like a mist or haze, a little night that he had made for himself for the star of his beauty to shine in. Now just try to imagine how lovely that little hummingbird must be. Can you understand anyone wanting to kill him? But now that I have told you about that wretched little demon with his charms to send people to sleep, and those two bad bottles of his, or rather the powders inside them, apathy and vanity, I dare say you can understand it. If I had not told you about him, I don't think you would have been able to. Princess Helen's coquette, how proud he ought to be of a name like that, is a little hummingbird something like the last one. He is a little smaller, I think, but whether he is a little prettier too, or not quite so pretty, or only as pretty, all that I shall leave to you. It is you who will have to decide. His back is all of a golden green, and his head, which has a forked crest at the back of it like a swallow's tail, is a beautiful, rich, dark, velvety green. So that would make a pretty little bird, would it not? Even without anything else. But he has something else. Two or three other things, in fact, which are so, oh, so very pretty. First, on each side of the back of the head, just under each fork of the little swallow-tailed crest, there is a little delicate tuft of feathers, which rise up and spread out upon each side in such a graceful little curve. But these feathers are not like other feathers. They are something like the funny feathers that the birds of paradise have, for they are quite thin, like threads, and an inch long, which although it is not quite so long as those, is yet a good length when you think of what a little thing this hummingbird is. These pretty little feathers are of a deep velvety green colour, the same colour as his swallow-tailed crest, and there are three on each side, three little velvet green feather threads floating out on each side behind his head. On his throat there is a gorget of gleaming jewelly green, much lighter than the other greens, more like emerald, but with a goldeny bronzy wash in it as well. Just think how beautiful that must be. And then, lower down on his throat, underneath the green gorget, as if all that were not enough for him, this hummingbird has something else. We will call it a tippet, which flies out all round his neck, and especially on each side of it. A 
tippet or a ruffle, perhaps that is rather a better word, a ruffle of velvet black feathers in front and of light chestnut feathers with velvet black stripes like a tiger on each side. As for his tail, it spreads out into a dear little fan and the fan is chestnut and black too, broad stripes of chestnut and narrow stripes of black with a broad patch of black where it begins, which looks like the handle of the fan. What a pretty, pretty bird! Fancy a little birdie that is only about two inches long and has a crest like a swallowtail on his head, a gorget or lappet on his throat, a tippet or ruffle just underneath the gorget, and a little spray of feather threads on each side of his head, just underneath the crest. Fancy killing such a little fairy bird as that. Fancy wanting to kill him. But it is all the little demon. It is he who has blown about his nasty powders and frozen the hearts of the poor women who are really so kind. At any rate, they would be if only he would let them. Did I say such a little fairy bird? I think I did and I was quite right, for it is just this very little hummingbird that the fairies are so fond of riding on. They go two at a time sometimes. One sits on his back, and another lies on the broad fan of his tail, and the one on the back uses the little feather threads as reins. It is so grand! The hummingbird dashes up at the fairy's own flower door, and hovers there till she is ready to come out and then dashes away with her to another flower, where another fairy lives. And that is how the fairies call upon each other in countries where there are hummingbirds. Perhaps you will think that a hummingbird, even quite a little hummingbird, and they are none of them big, is rather a large gigi for a fairy to ride on. But you must remember that in tropical countries, Fairies grow to quite a remarkable size. Well, that is eight hummingbirds that I have tried to describe to you, though it is very like trying to describe a sunset to someone who has never seen one. And perhaps you think I have chosen all the most beautiful ones first, and that there are no more left which are quite so pretty. But I think I can find just one more that is not such a very plain bird, not a bird you would call ugly if you were to see it hovering about over a bed of geraniums or under a cluster of honeysuckle some bright spring or summer morning when you happened to go out into your garden. So we will take that one, and if he is not pretty enough, you must just try to put up with him. He is called the sun beauty. Perhaps you would think him dark at first, for his head and back and shoulders are of such a rich, deep, velvety green that it almost goes into black velvet, all except one little spot on the forehead, just above the beak, and that never can look quite black. Sometimes it does almost, just for one second, but the next second it flashes into green again, and oh, how it gleams and sparkles and throws out little jewels, little splashes of sunfire, all round it. What a wonderful green it is at first, and then, 
oh, what a wonderful... But really, there is no proper name for that colour. I was going to say blue, and perhaps it is more like blue than anything else. But nothing else is quite like it. Then, just at the beginning of this hummingbird's throat, just under the chin, there are a few feathers that are like a kind of dusky, smoked, magenta, bronze jewellery. And a little farther down, they gleam into ruddy bronze and coppery topaz. And then, oh, what is that? The very sun himself has flashed out from his throat, from his gorget. Yes, a little flake of the sun. A sunflake instead of a snowflake. Oh, it is such a gorget, a gorget of golden topaz, of coppery gold, of green gold, of silver gold, of silver, of gleaming white, of all these together, and it spreads out on each side like a wonderful fan and shoots out in front of all the other feathers. Such a gorget. The feathers in it are not feathers at all. I do not think they can be feathers. They are sunflakes, as I have told you. That is what this hummingbird is like on the throat. Underneath the throat, on the breast, he becomes green again. Not the dark velvet green of the back, but a still more glorious green, gleaming and brilliant, but soft and rich at the same time. It is a green that changes, too, changes almost into blue. I will tell you how that is. Once this green, this wonderful, lovely green, did not think itself lovely enough, which was funny, so it said to the blue of the violet and the turquoise and the amethyst and the sapphire, Come and make part of me, but I must be the greater part. That is not fair, cried the blues of all those lovely things. We will come, since you have invited us, but we intend to have the upper hand. Come then, said the green, and let us fight for the mastery. Whichever wins, the other will be improved by it. We will struggle together, and we will see which is the strongest. So they came, those blues of wonder from the violet, the turquoise, the sapphire and the amethyst. Yes, and from the sky, the stars and the sea as well. And they fell in a glory on that glorious green that had been there before them and fought with it to possess the breast of that hummingbird. And they are fighting to possess it now. They gleam and flash and sparkle and glow and try to outglory each other. But I think that that wonderful green is the strongest, although he has such a lot of blues to fight against. But stronger than any, and than all of them, is the sun on that hummingbird's gorget, that gorget of gold and topaz, and copper and bronze, and silver and gleaming white. That is what that hummingbird is like, and that is how he got some of his wonderful colours. So, at least, the Indians say. Only some of them say that it was the blues who were there first and asked the green to come. But always in history, you will find that there are different opinions about the same thing. 
people are not all agreed even about the battle of waterloo so you see we have been able to find one other handsome hummingbird at any rate and then there is the hermit hummingbird i must just describe him his head and neck are brown the whole of his back is brown his wings his throat and his breast are brown and all the rest of him is brown why then he is all brown without any colours at all unless there are some lying asleep and ready to wake up and dart out all of a sudden in the way i have explained to you no there are no colours either asleep or awake or at any rate hardly any compared to the hummingbirds i have been telling you about this one is just a plain dull bird as plain and as dull almost as his wife for that you know is what the wives of hummingbirds are like then is he a hummingbird at all surely he is not one he must be some other bird oh no he is not he is a hummingbird but he is a hermit hummingbird i have not told you before but now i will tell you that there are some hummingbirds in fact a good many that have no bright colours at all and they are called hermits a hermit you know is a person who lives in a cell or cave and wears a long brown gown with a hood at one end of it for his head and never dresses gaily or goes out to see things but has what we should consider a very dull life only as he likes it that makes it all right for him so these dull coloured hummingbirds are called hermits not because they live in cells because of course they do not but because they have no bright things to wear but only brown gowns like hermits but now as hummingbirds used once to be sunbeams and are still living sunbeams that have been changed into birds how does it happen that any of them have become hermits with nothing showy about them that is a thing which requires an explanation so it is lucky that there is one all ready for it in the next chapter not all the things that require an explanation are so lucky as that some of them go on requiring one all their lives and yet never get what they require i have known several of that sort end of chapter 8「Chapter Nine of Beautiful Birds. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Beautiful Birds by Edmund Seleuse. Chapter Nine. Hermit Hummingbird and Two Other Ones. I told you that as soon as the sun's light fell upon the earth, all the sunbeams that had been asleep there woke up and were changed into hummingbirds. But there was just one sunbeam who had gone to sleep in a cave, and when he woke up it was quite dark, and so he was changed into a hummingbird without any colors. And when his brother hummingbirds saw him they laughed at him 
and called him a hermit. It was very wrong of them to do so, for it was not his fault that he was brown. There is nothing wrong in going to sleep in a cave, and of course he could not tell what would happen. So they thought he looked ridiculous, coming out of it all brown like a hermit. I don't think that made him ridiculous, really, but even if it did, they should not have laughed at him. We should not laugh at people because they are ridiculous. It makes them unhappy. And besides, we may be sure that in some way or other we are just as ridiculous as they are. We may not know in what way. That only shows how ignorant we are. It is best not to laugh at other people. If we want to laugh at anyone, we can always laugh at ourselves. Now the poor hummingbird was unhappy because he alone had no colors, and because all the other hummingbirds laughed at him. He complained of it to the son who was his father, and explained how it happened. It is unfortunate, said the son. But since I was unable to shine upon you when you awoke, I cannot give you my own livery to wear now. But do not be unhappy. The world is full of brightness and beauty, and if you go about asking for some of it from those who have it, none of them will refuse you when they know that you are one of my children. They will grant it you for the love of me, for I am loved of all that live upon the earth. In this way, though I cannot clothe you directly from myself, it will come to the same thing in the end, for it is through me that all things have their beauty, so that in having what was theirs, you will have what is mine, and still you will be a living sunbeam. Only do not ask any of your brother hummingbirds to give you anything, because then you will not be under any obligation to them. Your mother will explain to you what being under an obligation is, and how very many you are under her. So the poor hummingbird went about through the world asking all the beautiful things in it for some of their beauty, and not one that he had asked refused him for the love of his father the sun. He begged of the clouds at sunset, when they were all crimson light, and at sunrise when they were all topaz and amber, and all three of these lovely colors fell upon his throat and struggled for the mastery, like the green and blue on the breast of that other hummingbird that I have told you about. Then he begged of the bluest stars in the sky, and just on the outer edge of his now lovely throat, on that edge of that shining gorget, there fell such a blue as made one feel in heaven only to look at it. After that he begged of the sea that the sun was shining on in the morning, and now his head was of the loveliest pale sea-green, and then again he begged of it a little later in the day, and his back became a darker green, almost if not quite as lovely as the lovely one on his head. Thus he went about the world begging and asking, and he did not forget either the jewels or the flowers, or the colors that live in the rainbow. And at the end of the day the hummingbird that had been all brown, and that his brothers had called him a hermit, was one of the loveliest of all the hummingbirds, and his English name, we won't trouble you about the Latin one, was the all-glorious hummingbird. He was not called a hermit any more after that, 
But those hummingbirds that had called him one and laughed at him when he was brown were changed into hermits themselves. This is how there came to be hermit hummingbirds in the world, and one of them is the one that surprised you so much when I described him to you, because he was all brown. They are all of them brown, but you must not laugh at them for all that, even though they did at their brother. They have their punishment, and it is bad enough to be punished and made all brown, without being laughed at about it as well. Now, of course, as all the hermit hummingbirds are brown, it would be no use to describe them to you one at a time like the others. Instead of that, I will tell you about some more hummingbirds who are pretty and who came to be what they are like now in some curious way or other, which had nothing to do with their having once been sunbeams. One of these is the snowcap. He is very small, almost as small as the smallest of the hummingbirds and you know how small that is. And although he is not exactly brown, still he is not at all a brilliant bird for a hummingbird. What makes him so pretty is this. First of all, the whole crown of his head is of a beautiful pure silky white, which makes it look as if a large soft snowflake had fallen upon it. And then, when he spreads out his tail like a fan, which you may be sure he knows how to do, there are two white patches upon it as well, which look like two smaller snowflakes. It is not many hummingbirds who are ornamented in that way. How did this one get those white patches? And are they really snowflakes that fell upon him? You shall hear. Once they were not white at all, those patches, but colored with all the colors of the rainbow and more brilliant than anything you could possibly think of, more brilliant even than any other color that is upon any other hummingbird. Indeed, they were so brilliant that no one could look at them, and that made the hummingbird very proud indeed. Could my rivals have looked at me? he said. They could never have confessed my superiority, however plainly they must have seen it. Not to be able to look at me is in itself a confession. They are dazzled, and well they should be, for to look at me is like looking at the sun itself. Surely there is no earthly brightness that I do not outshine. And as the proud bird said this, he looked up, and there far above him in the blue dome of the sky, where the snows of the mighty mountain Chimborazo and in their white, dazzling purity they seemed even brighter than himself. But instead of being humbled, the hummingbird only felt insulted and resolved to do something decisive. I will thaw those white robes of his, he said. My brightness shall burn them away, and there shall be no more snow in the world. He was just a little larger than a humming-bee. So up this hummingbird flew right on to the top of Chimborazo, the great high mountain where there was snow everywhere. Have you come to thaw me, said the snow as it fell around him? That is ridiculous. We shall see which one of us is best able to extinguish the other. With that, one snowflake fell upon his head and two more upon his tail, just over those three patches that had been so marvelously bright. He tried to shake them off, but he could not. 
they stayed there, and instead of having been able to thaw them, it was they who put his brightness quite out. All those wonderful colors were gone now, and there was only the snow white. Fly back, said the snow, or I will quite cover you. You have lost that of which you were so proud, but you have me in exchange. Fly back and be a wiser bird for the future. So the hummingbird flew back ashamed and crestfallen in fear to show himself. What will the others say when they see me, he thought. But when the other hummingbirds saw him, they all cried out, Oh, look, what beautiful bird is that that has come to dwell among us? What an exquisite white! Surely he has been to the top of Chimborazo and brought down some of its snow upon him. How pure and how lovely! Yes, they could look at him now, and they thought him more beautiful than when they were blinded and dazzled. That is how that hummingbird got his snow-white patches. He had no colors now with which to outrival the other hummingbirds, but he could put up with that, for the white snow was lovelier than them all. And then there is the hummingbird that the Indians call the jewel-flower sunrise and sunset hummingbird. Only they have one word for it which makes it sound better. I have forgotten what his English name is. I am not quite sure if he has one. This hummingbird was very beautiful to begin with, so beautiful indeed that the flowers, as he hovered over them, fell in love with him and wished to give him their colors to wear, for their sakes. But the hummingbird did not want their colors, for he thought his own were much more beautiful. If you sparkle like jewels, he said, as well as being soft and bright, then it would be different. But your beauty is too homely. You are not sufficiently refulgent. That was a word he was fond of, for he had heard it applied to himself. Your mother will tell you what it means. So the flowers prayed to the sun from whom they had their beautiful colors, and the sun made them like jewels, jewels of the rose and the violet, of the lily and the daffodil, the sunflower, the pink and carnation. Perhaps they were not just the same flowers as those, for they grew in America, but they had all their colors and many more. That is an improvement, certainly, said the hummingbird, when he had looked at them. You are much more beautiful now, but you remain the same all day long. It is very different with the sky. Every morning and evening when the sun rises and sets, she has quite a special beauty, and it is only then that she can be said to be refulgent. If it were so with you, then I might take you, but I do not care for flowers who have no sunrise or sunset. So the flowers prayed to the sun again, and he made them as much more beautiful when he rose and set at morning and evening as the sky is then in the east and the west. And when the hummingbird saw that they were really refulgent, he took all their colors, and for a little while the flowers were quite pale, and only got bright again by degrees. But they never flashed and sparkled like jewels any more, and there was never another flower sunrise or another flower sunset. The hummingbird kept all that for himself. He never gave any of it back to the flowers. It was not very generous of him. I think he was going to be punished for it, but somehow or other it was forgotten. Punishments do get forgotten, sometimes almost as often perhaps as rewards. Those are just a few of the beautiful hummingbirds that there are in the world, 
and the New World that Columbus discovered. But, as you know, there are more than 400 different kinds, and numbers of them are just as beautiful, some perhaps even more beautiful than those I have told you about. And you may be sure that they know exactly what to do with their beauty, how to raise up their crests and fan out their tails and ruffle out their gorgets and tippets in the way to make them look most magnificent and give the greatest possible pleasure to their wives, who are all of them hermits, poor plain hummingbirds, just as the birds of the paradise do for their wives, who are hermits too. And do you know that when two gentlemen hummingbirds are both trying to please the same lady, but that, of course, is before she has married either of them, they very often fight, and it is then that they gleam and flash and sparkle more brilliantly than at any other time. Ah, what a wonderful sight that must be to see! Those fights between little fiery-winged meteors, those jewel combats in the air, diamonds and rubies and sapphire and topaz and emerald and amethyst, all angry with each other, shooting out sparks at each other, trying to blind each other, to flash each other down. Ah, those are fiery battles indeed, and yet when they are over, you will think it wonderful not one hummingbird has been burnt up by another one. No, hummingbirds do not kill each other. They do not even hurt each other very much. They are only angry. And even that does not last very long. We are not very angry with the poor hummingbirds. I even think we must be fond of them, for there is really hardly one that we have not called by some pretty name, though not nearly so pretty as itself. And yet we kill them. We take away their bright little gem-like lives that are so lovely and so happy. The people who live in those countries make very fine nets, as fine and delicate as those that ladies use for their hair, and put them over the flowers or the shrubs that the hummingbirds come to, so that they get entangled in them and cannot fly away. Then when they come and find them, they kill them, could you kill a living sunbeam and send their skins over here to be put into the hats of women whose hearts the wicked little demon has frozen? Into hats? Ah, I think if one of those poor, frozen-hearted women could see a hummingbird sitting alive in its own little fairy nest, she would blush. Yes, blush to think of it in her hat, even though she wore a pretty one and was pretty herself, too. For I must tell you that the nest that hummingbirds make are so pretty and graceful and delicate that one might almost think that they had been made by the fairies. And indeed, the Indians say that the fairies do make them and give them to the hummingbirds. But that is not really true. Hummingbirds make their own nests, like other birds, though I cannot help thinking that sometimes the fairies must sit in them. Yes, they sit and swing in them sometimes, I feel sure in the warm tropic nights, when the stars are set thick in the sky, and the fireflies make stars in the air. For they hang like little cradles from the tips of the leaves of palm trees, or from the ends of long dangling creepers or tendrils, or even from the drooping petal of a flower. They are made of fine webs of spiders, all plaited and woven, or of down that is like our thistle down but thicker and softer and silkier. And you may think of everything that is soft and delicate and graceful and fragile and fairy-like. 
but when you see a hummingbird's nest, you will think them all coarse. Yes, coarse by comparison. And to think of that bright little glittering thing sitting there alive and warm, in its warm little soft fairy nest, and then to think of it in a hat, and dead. Oh dear, dusty too, I feel sure. Oh dear, but it is all the fault of that most wicked little demon, and you are going to set it right. Now perhaps you will wonder why there has been nothing about promises yet, for there have been thirteen hummingbirds in the two last chapters, and not a single promise about any of them. But then what would be the use of promising about thirteen when there are four hundred and more? It would be even so much better, I think, to promise about all the four hundred and more together, and that is what I want you to ask your mother to do. Then all those little glittering, jewelly, fairy-like things will go on living and being happy, will go on glittering and gleaming, flashing through the air, sparkling amongst the flowers, sitting and shining in dear little soft swinging cradles on the tips of broad, green palm leaves or the petals of fair drooping flowers. They will go on being living sunbeams then, not poor dead dusty ones in hats. And it will be you who will have done this, you who will have kept sunbeams alive in the world instead of letting them be killed and go out of it forever. Yes, it will be you and your dear mother. So now you must say to your dear mother, Oh, mother, do promise never to wear a hat that has a hummingbird in it. Say it quickly and with ever so many kisses. End of chapter 9